Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome back, everyone, to the Thought Leadership Project podcast. I am Tom Nixon, of course, and joined, as always, and sometimes even without me, Jay Harrington. How's it going? Good, Tom. How are you? Good, good. Happy to be here, as always. Um, I think la- it was last episode that we were joking uh, about whether or not the chat GPT and the robots were going to replace us for the subsequent ep- episode. So if there was a break, we left off for three weeks because A, you went on vacation, but B, because the chat bots just were not up to it. So here we are. Yeah, we're still, still as fast as things are compounding. It may not be much longer, but uh, but for now, we're <laughs> Well, let's let's get an episode in before that happens. So we might as well start there. Um, you uh, have joked that we'll do this week in chat GPT from here on out. And so let's go there. Um, I just had a quick observation. Um, I'm curious if you've experimented with any of the other uh, AI platforms. I got invited to Google's Bard, right, which is um, I'm a sucker for a good brand. And so I look at Bard and I'm a writer and that seems to just connect with me more than chat GPT, which I don't really even know exactly what that stands for unless I go look up and remind myself. So I experimented with Bard a little bit. Um, I don't know if it's all that different from chat GPT. Um, I don't think it seems to be as good yet, but have you experimented with any others and what have you found? Yeah. So a little bit, I mean, there's a, element of overwhelm here and it's part probably part of the ai hype cycle right where i mean i go on twitter or i I signed up for several ai related newsletters and i mean it seems like every day there's you know 20 to 25 new tools companies that have you know specific use cases for um you know ai integration oftentimes built on the open ai you know platform uh the the chat gpt platform and so, you know, I have experimented a little bit, but I also am kind of overwhelmed. So I've been spending most of my time that I'm I'm using related to AI on the ChatGPT4 platform. I, I pay for the Plus program, um, so have access to uh, ChatGPT4. So honestly, that's where I've spent almost all of my time. Yeah, yeah. And that's... Is it leaps and bounds like it's purported to be over 3.5, was it? Yeah, 3.5 was the last platform. That's what I think people with the free account are currently utilizing. I mean, it's a little bit hard. Occasionally, I will A-B test it, right? Because you can go back to 3.5 and see what what the answer is. I I have found that it is more intuitive. It is more um, accurate. Uh, It is capable of doing things that 3.5 was not certainly. So I think it has been a big step up um, in terms of capability and reliability, frankly. Um, It just, you can do more engineering around the prompting that produces better results and output. So I I do think it's a big upgrade. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. My other observation, I'm curious um, uh, where you're, what you're seeing as well in this area is, so as a content developer, I'm doing a lot of my time, I'm, I'm writing thought leadership content. So uh, ironically enough, I am writing a lot these days across all industries. Legal is one of them, but every industry is grappling with what does this AI, whatever it's going to be, what does this mean for our profession? 
And it seems like almost every profession is on the one hand optimistic and eager and on the other hand skeptical and pessimistic. It seems like everyone's kind of taking a wait and see approach, even though, like you mentioned, this hype cycle, man, I've never seen anything this hype since the Internet came around. But um, so everyone seems to be weighing in on it. And it again, like I said, ironically enough, I'm doing a ton of writing about this artificial intelligence uh, tool. So are you seeing that as well? So I know you're mostly dialed into the legal industry. Yeah, no, but I am seeing it and and have been doing some writing about it as well um, as it relates to the legal industry. So, yes, I think that is certainly um, pertinent and top of mind for people across different industries. I think for good reasons. I mean, you saw things like the Goldman Sachs um, analysis that came out in the last couple of weeks. And I mean, as it, re- it was talking specifically about particular industries where AI is likely to automate you know, certain number percentage of tasks that, you know, professionals, particularly knowledge workers perform. I think in the legal industry, it said something along the lines of, you know, I, I don't know what the time frame was exactly, but they expected 44% of what it would call legal tasks to be automated away by artificial intelligence. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Goldman Sachs is, is not, I, I would categorize as a hyperbolic, you know, organization that's going to just create some outlandish statistics with no basis just to generate clicks. Um, so I think that kind of thing needs to be taken seriously. And yeah, it, it, that, that's no different than medical, accounting, recruiting. I mean, there's all kinds of different you know, implications, I think, for this moving forward. Well, last question on this for me, unless there's something else you want to bring up, um, is I, you coach and you train and you counsel associate attorneys as well as partners and sole proprietors and you know up and down. what what are you telling the let's say the associate level attorney who mo, mo, might be I guess most subject to whatever this ends up being or, or the junior associate or, or even a law school student yeah so I, I I've been having some of these conversations I mean I certainly I mean I guess if I was just take a couple steps back and just talk about you know what are some concerns, some observations, just some thoughts on this topic in general? I mean, I'm optimistic in many ways. I think that you know the promise of AI, um, and let's talk about it specifically within the legal industry, is that it will allow lawyers to um, kind of level up to you know more interesting aspects of their work because uh, it'll it'll automate out of the uh, you know, out of someone's to-do list, some of the things that would previously be tedious, you know, mundane tasks like legal research and document review and contract analysis, that kind of thing. Um, but obviously that has an impact because that's a lot of the work that junior lawyers do, for example. So I do think, you know, from the standpoint of a, of a junior lawyer or someone who's in law school, certainly, I think it's important to pay attention and to ignore people who say that it's going to have no impact and you really shouldn't worry about it. Um, and, and as a result, you know, the need to understand these tools, the need to understand how to effectively prompt generative AI, uh, for example, is going to be a really important skill set of the future. Um, so mm. that's certainly something that I think, you know, every lawyer should start to familiarize themselves with. And frankly, uh, you know, related to this, um, and maybe it's something we can talk about um, in the next episode or two. I've been working on this problem a bit. I'm planning on rolling out uh, and I'm developing a training on the topic of prompt engineering for lawyers. 
specifically in the context of marketing, right? Um, I think that there were still in a period of time where integrating AI, especially just like a chat GPT-4 platform into uh, one's legal work product is a little premature for some obvious reasons related to data privacy and confidentiality and attorney-client privilege, um, that there's some real concerns there. And those concerns, I think, are merited. Um, but that being said, you know, marketing is an area where I think lawyers can utilize these tools now um, with less of those concerns. So I think that that is a really important skill set for everyone to learn, especially junior lawyers who are almost certainly going to be you know, finding uh, themselves spending more time utilizing AI to do some of the work that they would otherwise have done, you know, manually um, themselves. So, you know, at the end of the day, I'm hopeful that at least in the, you know, relatively near term before we get out too far and, and you know, AI becomes even more powerful, you know, the, the way I've put it is that I think AI will be something that enhances lawyers' capabilities and will allow them to think more creatively and strategically, utilize judgment, because I don't think that's something that AI is, is close to really being able to replace. Um, kind of like having an Iron Man suit on, right? Where it's like enhancing human capabilities. Um, but, you know, at the same time, that raises a number of concerns. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about recently, especially as it relates to junior lawyers is, there are a lot of, there are already a bunch of problems with lawyers deriving, you know, trying to derive satisfaction and meaning from their work, right? Um, job satisfaction is low and people struggle with mental health issues and that kind of thing. And I think finding meaning in one's work goes a long way towards help alleviating some of those problems. But, you know, if I think back to my own experience as a junior lawyer, you know, some of those tedious mundane tasks that perhaps AI will automate out of existence. I mean, struggling through some of those hard problems, you know, finding that needle in a haystack case that uh, relates to a legal research question that um, is going to impact, you know, the outcome of a litigation matter or something like that, that, that would hard work and it would, it would oftentimes, you know, be stressful work. But, you know, struggling through those hard problems oftentimes uh, gives you meaning in your work, right? You're, you're feeling like you're making a contribution, you're feeling like you're solving a problem. And if all you're doing is just using AI tools to come up with those answers, I don't know, some of that meaning gets stripped away from the work. And the other problem that's closely related to that is, yeah, um, you know, the promise of, of AI, again, is to help lawyers level up and say, have partner level um, litigators and deal makers being able to spend more time thinking and thinking creatively and exercising their judgment. But if all of that work that allows junior lawyers to start to develop good judgment and develop confidence in themselves mm. and their work is, is stripped away, then where's the next pipeline of partners who can exercise judgment and, and do those kinds of things and level up to the next, you know, sort of um, a higher level of work, I, I don't know. I, I just don't understand. You know, there's a there's a disconnect there to some extent. Where where does the next generation of lawyers come from if a lot of the work that they were previously doing gets automated away? So in any event, I, just some general observations. Yeah. But those things are some things I've been thinking about recently. 
I've been questioning that myself. Exactly. Where does the next generation of thinkers come from? I, I hate to sound like an old man, but you already see some of that in the youngest generation in the workforce now where they rather be told how to solve a problem when what you're asking them to do is to go figure out how to solve the problem. And they, they just, they're used to having everything, you know, a, a Google search away. So, um, but here's a, maybe a dumb sounding question, but it's related. And I just don't see how this circle gets squared either. How does, all right, if a firm is billing by the hour and all of that research would have taken 10, 20, 30, 40 hours, and now it's taking one hour, right? You know, just to use an extreme example, how does the billable hour model work? I mean, do you just fake it? You bill for the time it would have taken humans to do this? Or is, you know, does the model change at all? Or what are your thoughts on that? It's just, it doesn't seem... To me, that it's a completely clear. If all of this time is being saved, then that's all that time that's not being billed to the client. Is that a good thing? Yeah. Well, I think it will for some changes as it relates to the economics of the um, the profession. Now, you know, the one thing that we haven't raised here is, you know, is there it will will the industry sort of um, implement some measures to protect itself from some of this disruption? Because you know, there is the you know, the ethical rules, the regulatory frameworks that govern the practice of law. So you know, it's possible that some of this gets, some of these potential problems get regulated um, away, at least in the near term, in terms of, okay, you know, lawyers are not allowed to use AI in certain roles or with certain, in terms of certain functions. But, you know, the relentless pace of technology will ultimately probably you know, force that change upon them. And I think obviously clients will expect if there's a more efficient way to do this work, they'll expect their firms to adopt and adapt to it. Um, or they'll bring it in house or they'll find someone else who can do it, um, you know, yeah. whether that be an alternative legal <clears throat> service provider or otherwise. But yeah, I think there will be change. Um, I think it will become necessary. I mean, the, the there there's also, you know, this, there's always, um, when it comes to technological change and innovation, there's always these discussions and concerns about, well, what happens to this and what happens to that? And all these jobs go away. And, and of course, AI could very well you know, significantly grow the economy in a way that makes everyone even better off. Like the change that we're anticipating sometimes is disruptive and we're anticipating it having negative impact. But you know, we might be sitting here five years from now and realize that the legal industry has grown fivefold because there's just more work to do. It's opened up new avenues of service offerings. There's all, a whole host of new legal issues that have arisen related to intellectual property and, and the economy has grown as a result of all these innovations. So I don't really know, um, but I think that, yeah, you will, you will find, I think, some uh, necessity to adapt and adopt new models for um, billing uh, fees and and AI will will force some change, I think, in those areas as well. Yeah. Well, I am, like I said, old enough to remember uh, being in the workforce before the internet. Believe it or not, it's uh, we had paper and folders and couriers uh, to do the stuff that the internet does now. So it's obviously that didn't kill. Uh, it, it probably didn't kill as many industries as it created, for sure. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, All right. Well, that's been the uh, that has been the history of of technological innovation, right? It's a growth. It's a growth story as opposed to one. I mean, there are instances of disruption and but overall, usually the pie grows as a result of that. The productivity increases. 
Yeah, but I will remind you of what happened in the Twilight Zone, where the robot became the boss. And the <laughs> boss was. <laughs> Remember that episode? Maybe not. This this this, this like uh, tycoon realized that he could get robots to do what the people do, and so one by one he started replacing all the people, and eventually the robot took over his job. Anyways, yeah. uh, let's move on to something less dystopian than that. In uh, sticking on the theme of the billable hour, so. I saw you write something the other day that I wasn't aware of, and that was a downturn in the legal industry um, in terms of what we're just talking about, hours generated. So maybe give us a little bit of background on that. I was not aware that this was happening. And then what does that mean and what should we think about it? Yeah. So, I mean, I think in general, I mean, it's, it's, it's both anecdotal in conversations I've been having with clients and, and also I think, you know, pretty widely reported that, you know, demand is generally in many firms weakening in terms of, um, you know, and, and that's largely been driven by a lot of the transactional work, um, M&A, private equity, you know, venture capital, all of that is down a bit. So client, clients have, as a result, um, tightened up in some areas. Um, other areas are still very busy. Obviously, restructuring's continuing to um, become more uh, relevant in these types of uh uncertain economic times litigation in many respects is is still busy so it's you know there's there's pockets of busyness there's pockets where things are slowing down um but in general there's probably a little bit of a trending down that i've at least been witnessing and i think that's generally been supported by the data um so what i wanted to talk a little bit about is okay what what can we do to combat that especially from like a marketing and business development standpoint in particular so, you know, the way I've been talking to a lot of clients about it right now is one of the things that you can do that's really tangible and important is when things get a little slow on the billable hour side, really focusing and doubling down on your existing client base uh, in particular, right? Because, you know, this is, an, this is an instance where you need to really guard those relationships and, and ideally grow them in, during a downturn where maybe clients are looking to consolidate a little bit of the work. Um, with, with certain firms. So how do we do this? Um, you know, the easiest way to put it, I think, is thinking in terms of adding value beyond the billable hour. So when things are really busy and you know, when people are really busy, it's really easy to stay in front of and in touch with clients because you're oftentimes doing active projects with them. When things slow down a little bit, it becomes harder to do that um, for, for many lawyers because, you know, they're, they're used to just that day-to-day -day interaction in the context of the projects and, and matters that they're handling for a client. So you have to be more proactive about it and think more thoughtfully about how do I stay in front of clients in a way that they perceive as valuable. So adding that value beyond the billable hour becomes pertinent. Um, and in general, you know, this is the sort of nuts and bolts of marketing still. You just need to direct it towards your existing clients. Um, so you're still looking to educate them, inform them, in some cases, entertain them, right? Um, and yeah. finding methodologies, finding ways to do that on a regular cadence is really important. I mean, I just thought briefly before we started this episode about, you know, a, a, a possible framework, way someone might think about this. And, and I tried to set a constraint for myself, which is, which is to say, um, you know, if, if someone has, say, five hours every month they could allocate towards adding value beyond the billable hour for their existing client base, what might that look like? And I just sketch out a, a couple things, a couple ideas that I'll, I'll share. Um, you know, one might be, you know, just working towards developing some sort of monthly 
either industry or practice specific update that you send to all your clients, or at least most of them, if they're similarly situated within your practice. So, so this is not a necessarily a, a major content creation effort. It's more of a content curation effort where you're sending insights to people. You might be identifying risks that you think are uh, maybe on the horizon for them, relevant industry news and trends, that kind of thing. And it's just a really good touching base point for all of your clients, whether you're working actively for the mo at the moment for them or not. Um, and it doesn't really take all that much time and it could be simply done through just sending a, a simple email, BCCing a bunch of clients um, you know, with, a, with, with the same output, so to speak. So that should only take you, you know, maybe a couple hours to put together. Um, and then I think uh, you take at least your top clients, like let's say it depends. I mean, sometimes people have, might have five clients that constitute most of the practice. Other cases, if it's high volume, they might have a hundred clients, but just picking some number of clients, you know, whether it be five, 10, 15, 20, or up to maybe 25, who you consider as your best clients and some, doing some form of individualized outreach to them, right? Where you get more you get more uh, a more tailored form of communication. So that might be a phone call or an email um, where you're really gearing your communication towards their particular needs and that particular relationship. Um, and that, that could probably take you a couple hours as well. And then the final thing is not done on a monthly basis, but this might be something you, you can and should do um, say twice a year, which would be doing a more comprehensive business review meeting or call with a client where the objective being learning as much as you can about what's happening in their business and through that process demonstrating that you're invested in that relationship right because clients tell us over and over especially in-house counsel that the number one thing they look for in their outside counsel is um, a, a clear understanding of their business and industry. And there's no better way to gain that understanding, in my opinion, is to have those conversations off the clock without billing hours um, and, and doing that in a way that gives you both intelligence about how to improve and think about issues for your clients. And I also find that those types of conversations oftentimes give rise to new projects and, and matters as well. I mean, there's nothing like having a phone call with a client, asking them a bunch of questions about their business um, to unearth new opportunities that may be sitting on their desk, but they just haven't gotten around to outsourcing to a, a lawyer or law firm yet. So I think those are just three ways to think about it. Probably take you, you know, a cumulative five hours a month um, to, to do that type of work. And I, I can almost guarantee you that if you do those simple things, you're almost certainly going to generate new work opportunities out of it. And if, and even if you don't on a particular month, you're going to be sort of adding um, to the, you know, adding to the relationship in a way that builds trust and at least keeps you visible to that client. So whatever your approach might be, just, I think during these times, if you're finding that work's getting a little more scarce, think in terms of adding value beyond the billable hour in order to um, add value to that relationship. Yep. Yep. Really good. And you're talking about a little over an hour per week. So it's not, you know, if you're talking about five hours a month, that's not a lot. Um, the other thing I would just add maybe to consider is, you know, the person that always says, I'm so busy right now. If, if things ever slow down, I'll, I'll finally invest in marketing. Okay. Well, this is the promise that you made to yourself that now is the time if you're experiencing what Jay said, or even if you're not. And the point being too, is if you can put 
start doing some activity, some business development activity, writing, getting it, uh, thought leadership content out, a newsletter, anything. If you could get the system built now, once the system's up and running, like it, it almost has, it takes its momentum where it's like really easy to do it the third time, the fifth time, the 10th time, by the 12th time, it's, you know, you're in this groove and what would have taken you an hour can now maybe only take you 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So use this time to get the system in place that you're always talking about, Jay. And then once the system's in place, as you get busy again, it won't be such a big lift. And maybe you can even hand it off to somebody because the system's so sound, now an administrative assistant can do this and you're spending a fraction of your time. So that would be my advice to everyone who said someday, well, this is that someday. Yeah, that's good. Stuff. All right. Um, yep. Yes. Well, yeah, let's so move we on to uh, your, your, your favorite topic, Jay, LinkedIn, right? <laughs> so uh, uh, you and I had a conversation off air and there seems to be a lot of chatter out there questioning once again, whether LinkedIn is doing something with its algorithm or it's throttling back um, uh, uh, content distribution. Um, so I, I don't know if what you see, but I guess more importantly, if that is the case now or ever, what does it mean and what should we do differently, if anything? So what have you seen? Yeah, so yeah, there's, like you said, there's been a lot of chatter on LinkedIn lately about this issue. And I mean, the consensus that I've seen at least has been that, yeah, people feel like their uh, distribution of content is down. Um, impressions are down and yeah, whether that be, it's in fact being throttled, um, I, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that in my own experience, I, I would be surprised, I, you know, I've been doing consistent content generation on LinkedIn um, for the last say three years. And I think, you know, it's been a, it's been a continual upward trajectory in terms of impressions. Um, I think year one was maybe a million impressions uh, that I generated during that year. The second year it was 2 million and then last year 10 million. So yeah, con continual wow. steady in that, in that case, somewhat exponential growth um, in, in 2022. I would be shocked and I, I'm highly doubtful that I will exceed last year's performance on LinkedIn. And I think I'll still be generating the same amount of content and but I and I don't necessarily at least I don't think it's been a issue of quality. Um, I've been putting effort into it, but my guess is based on where I'm tracking now. Yeah, I mean, impressions will likely be down thirty to forty percent um, in twenty twenty. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah, quite a bit. Um, so you know, I guess yeah. The question is, um, and, and why is that happening? I think in part because I do think there are more people who are creating content on LinkedIn. You know, for years, everyone talked about, oh, you know, 1% of people on LinkedIn are consistently creating content. I think it's becoming a more um, active platform. I, I've talked before about the fact that, you know, I've seen many of the high profile, large audience creators from Twitter, you know, coming over to LinkedIn. And and that that's only increased over time. You know, they found it. They found that this platform um, is also a great place to reach an audience and build an audience. So necessarily, if there's more people, you know, the, the you can only be served so much content from so many people. So if there's more content being created, then you know your own content is probably going to be down a little bit. So if if we're to agree that that's in fact happening, and and I think the consensus is that it is for most people. Yeah, the natural question is what to do about that, if anything, or how to think about it. And I don't know, 
um, I'm not really changing much of anything. Like I'm not, I'm not changing my approach. Um, maybe I should be, but you know, one of the dangers that I've kind of observed that I think that many people may run into is that, you know, if they are changing the approach, the approach that I've seen is, is one that is, um, you're trying to optimize for, I think, what people think the algorithm wants. And, and a, mm. a sharp increase in what I'll call personal content, you know, as opposed to professional content. And I don't mean, you know, I don't mean it's more casual content that, um, you know, has a business aspect to it. I just mean it, it's more um, people telling personal stories and, and things of that nature. And, and as we've talked about before, that can be really valuable. But I think, you know, you have to, I, the way I'm thinking about it is you have to keep in mind what your goals and objectives are for a content creation and making sure mm -hmm. that your content approach is still aligned with your business objectives. Because what, what the thing I worry about a little bit for some people is that, you know, they're starting to optimize for visibility and, and impressions, regardless of how that visibility and those impressions are being generated. And ultimately, if, if the goal is, and if your goal is, is just to use the platform as a visibility mechanism, um, sort of, then, then go for it. Like, I'm not trying to tell anyone what to do, but I'm just saying, if your goal, if you're a lawyer, for example, and your goal is to um, generate new business opportunities and um, sort of build your brand as an expert within a space and cultivate an audience, within your ideal um, client target market, well then, you know, keep in mind that, you know, most of those people are probably, they, they, they want to know, yeah, yes, they want to know the person behind the professional, but ultimately what they want to do is develop a high level of trust that you're an expert who knows what they're talking about and, it, and is this type of person who's capable of solving their problems for them. And if you're not giving them a heavy dose of content that addresses that issue, then, you know, it may be that you're missing out on an opportunity. So I don't know, I, I just, you know, for me, there's a, there's a danger in, um, in veering too far off the path of aligning your content strategy with your underlying business strategy, if that's in fact why you're on LinkedIn. It certainly is for me. Um, so I'm going to kind of, you know, stay the course. And even if my impressions are down, I still think it's one of the best places on the internet to be sharing that form of content. So, uh, you know, and I think for other people, it, it, it continues to be as well. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then the other thing I would suggest is, you know, if we continue to see this where impressions, you know, continue to trend down for most people, you know, we, I've also talked about in general, um, it's better to become really good and really invested in one platform rather than spreading yourself too th thin across many different ones. But it might be a time to experiment with another platform. It's certainly been something I've been doing. I've been investing a lot more time on Twitter, for example. Um, I've both been enjoying that platform in terms of, um, you know, sort of connecting with new people and seeing new forms and different forms of content um, and also creating on that platform as well. And I will say this, while I've seen my LinkedIn uh, visibility and, and impressions go down, I've seen my Twitter content really accelerate in terms of um, views and, and visibility. I mean, in, in the metric that I, I use to measure that, um, I'm still not getting as many, as much visibility or views on Twitter as I am on LinkedIn, but my, my, my views relative to my follower count on each platform 
Twitter, I'm, I'm getting many more views relative to my follower count than I am on, on LinkedIn. So I only have approximately 1,700 followers on Twitter. I've, I've approximately tripled that probably in the last six months. So I started from just a, a small number, like 500. Um, but you know, if I look back at my tweets in the last week alone, one generated you know 8,000 views, the next 31,000, and the one after that 16,000. So significantly more than my follower count. I think there's a, a greater capacity for virality on LinkedIn, or sorry, on Twitter yeah. still um, relative to LinkedIn right now. And so, you know, if if that seems like an environment or a platform that you're interested in, um, it might be worth checking it out, experimenting with it a little bit. I think that you have the potential right now to generate more visibility and maybe have um, you know faster growth on a platform like Twitter right now. But at the moment in time, that could change. But the point being, it might be time to experiment a little bit if you're seeing your LinkedIn content not getting the reach you're used to. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, Twitter is very much more an open, open, open network, right? There's not, there's, unlike Facebook and LinkedIn, for the most part, it's kind of like a mutual agreement to follow each other or connect with each other. Um, not so on Twitter. I mean, I could go retweet uh, something from Lamar Odom if I wanted to or comment on one of his posts, right? So it's like, I don't even know if he's on Twitter. But anyways. Um, <laughs> interesting, interesting take there. <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to think of like a Kardashian, and but like right. I don't follow the Kardashians. Lamar Odom, <laughs> at least I know who that is. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Um, so I guess, so my take on this um, is for one, I, I never get overly obsessed with quantity numbers um, in the short term. So as things like and this, to me, this is still the short term because my impressions are down as well. But, you know, it's, it's going to stay like that forever. I don't know. I'm going to take a wait and see approach. Um, the other thing is, if if it is going to be the case, for me, what I would rather do is I'd rather have deeper connection with the fewer people that is seeing my content as opposed to um you know this broad reach of a bunch of people that may or may not even really be all that connected or engaged with what i do or what i write about or whatever so in that case i think i would favor getting more focused on a content area and go deeper into it so that the people that do see it you're going to resonate with the right people to a greater degree and maybe to a lesser extent numbers wise so that's my only thought on that um Okay, well, and then the other two, this is just a hypothesis of why this might be happening. One is, um, there's just not many people on LinkedIn, because they're all over playing with chat GPT. And I say that, <laughs> talking cheek, yeah. obviously. Yeah. The other thing is, maybe people aren't on LinkedIn, because they've got chat GPT processing all their LinkedIn information for hey, chat GPT, summarize my LinkedIn feed. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, Anyways. All right, yeah. well, cool. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to take a wait and see approach. I am also on Twitter, um, and you do see, I mean, the impact for things to go, quote, I've never gone, you know, viral in the strict sense, but there's things that, you know, I shared only for my own sake and my own entertainment, and it went crazy. And it's just so that potential is out there. I think it all goes back to, again, what I've said in the past, are you looking to build an audience or grow a network? And they're, they're two different things in my mind. So audiences can be great for reach, and especially if you want to monetize it or sell access to it or just market yourself through it. Um, but for other people, the stronger network is better because it's just they only need five or six referrals for an entire year to fill up their calendar. So for everyone, it's different. Yeah. Anyways, 
uh, last question. Do you, uh, would you like to make any predictions on whether chat GPT will replace us for next week's episode? Is it a week, week by week thing? We're going to have to like, Hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, uh, I, I'm confident we'll be back. Uh, but I'm confident also that we'll probably have new developments in the world of at the intersection of AI and the legal industry to talk about too. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, Let's leave off there, and I'll thank everyone for tuning in and uh, check us out next week. We will be back, as Jay said, for another episode of the Thought Leadership Project Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com. 